will be opening up into Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, as we look at, again, a very profitable passage. You know, it's funny, is, is after I go through the messages and I go through all the studying and the prep and I pull off the books on my shelf and I'm like, oh, I wonder what so-and-so says about this. And, and they always say, and this is a very important, this is one of the most important passages. It's like, you, I've seen that over. It's like, okay, all of them are important. Um, sometimes we, we uh, think, oh, this passage is the most important. But the reality is they're all important because they all fit Together, They tell us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we shouldn't just make light of any of the passages because they all tell us about God's glory, all some of who he is. This morning, we get to open up this new section. Uh, a lot of times you hear the word sanctification, and that's this process of, of, of becoming more like Christ. Um, in becoming and growing into who Christ is. This transformation, this imitation, becoming who he is. We have a position that we are sanctified, that means we are saved, but we still have this body of the flesh that one day he will take care of and unite us with him for the rest of eternity. No more flesh, but perfection in Worshiping God forever in heaven. And so we talk about sanctification in this process of being united with Christ, becoming more like him, maturing into Christ. And that's the idea. You know, as you see kids grow and as they change, they mature, hopefully. That's, that's the joy. That's the hope. We want them to mature. It doesn't mean that they always act mature, Right? You know adults, we don't always act mature, but that's the idea. From last week, we talked about the fact that we have two representatives in the world over the human race, because there's only one race, but we have two representatives. We have Adam and we have Christ. And we have this new union with this representative. When, when God saves us, he transforms us or he translates us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we now are being baptized into Christ, into his death, burial, and resurrection from one union with Adam into this new union with Christ. Two different representatives. And that context is extremely important into what Paul is trying to teach us about this new life this new union with Christ, being united with him. That should be something different, something changing. Plugging our library and our library committee, um, you know, sometimes they're like, what are some helps about what we're learning in Romans chapter 6? I have this one here. It's called uh, Putting Your Past in Its Place. Steve Vyers uh, biblical counselor, lead pastor in Indiana, writes about moving forward from your past. Very amazing, beautiful book talking about this union that we have in Christ and how that just translates 
our new life with Christ and moves us from our past. So our past has no grip on us. A great book. The other one, a great theologian, R.C. Sproul, talks about growing in holiness. I love this one. There's another one that J.C. Ryle wrote called Holiness. It's a thick book. I love it. Ryle, or not Ryle, but J.C. R.C. Sproul takes J.C. Ryle to, you know, I get those confused. Uh, but he takes it and he talks about how do we grow in holiness, not just the holiness of God, but how does that transform our life in a great book? The other one, which I have on Kindle, so I don't have it in front of me, <laughs> but I have a picture, Remade. Um, it's a new one that Paul Teagues writes, Remade, talking about our union with Christ. All these books have to do with what we're preaching on. And they're not books that talk about just people's ideas. These are books that take us directly back to Scripture in God's ideas and how that impacts our life. That's important to understand. They're not just good books because they communicate man's ideas. They're good books because they take you back to Scripture. So if you want to further study about Romans chapter 6, as we look at Romans 6 through 8, these are all good books. I'm going to leave them up here on the front, and you can come back and look at them, write the titles down, and do some self-study throughout the week. It'll help as we go through Romans, as we look at these big ideas. Before we pray, I want to talk uh, and give you an illustration to think about as we go through this message. We just heard in Colossians 3 or 2, Colossians 2, that we shouldn't follow, you know, vain uh, philosophies and the things of this world. But I'm going to quote a philosopher. (laughs) And because he gives us a great illustration of what God is trying to teach us. And he also points to God. This philosopher actually was a physician. He was a philosopher, and he was a Greek poet. And he was a great guy, and he has a lot of great ideas. But he said this, and it points and gives us a great illustration of what we're going to be learning this morning. His name is Nicander. And he was from a providence or area that would be in modern-day Turkey. But he was a Greek poet and philosopher. He said this. He lived in 200 B.C. It is, he talks about a recipe for making pickles. Maybe you're making pickles right now, right? Some of you may can them. But I I prefer, I love those fermented pickles. They're amazing. And they help my digestion as well. Uh, All those processed foods, fermented pickles or fermented cabbage. It's great. But he says this. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable, that is, right, the cucumber, right, it's a cucumber, should first be dipped into boiling water and then submerged into a vinegar solution. You know what's amazing? He uses two verbs in this writing about his recipe for pickles. 
You take it and you dip it into boiling water. You know why? The boiling water did what to the cucumber? It what? It opens the pores. And what else? Softens it. Well, that's what, in opening the pores, it softens and then sterilizes it. Right, it opens and it, it, it takes the, all the dirt out of the pores. But did it make it a pickle? No, it's just a soggy boiled vegetable. <laughs> right? I love cucumbers, but don't cook my cucumber. That's gross. Right? You just dip it. But that's bapto. Right? It's the Greek word bapto. Don't get bapto confused with baptism. Ba- the Greek word for baptism is baptizo. Do you know for all of these years, they've translated that word baptism from the Greek word baptizo. They've never actually Americanized it and say submerged. They've just said baptism or baptize to submerge. But here he uses these two forms. One was temporary, didn't change the cucumber. The second one, you totally submerged in the solution. In fact, you put a little weight on the top to keep it submerged as the gas that's transforming the cucumber into the pickle escapes. There's a part that escapes from the transformation as it's being transformed, and it leaves. He gives us a great picture of what we're going to talk about in Romans chapter 6, using these two words. In fact, we see in the Old Testament, right, they sacrificed, right, they did the sacrificial animal, they, they put it on the altar, and it was only temporary in covering their sin. It was never, it didn't transform them, it just was a temporary covering. It was an act of cleaning to be, to be able to see the direction that God was giving them. It was only temporary. But in the New Testament, Christ came, our new representative, that was, he died and he was buried and he rose again. And now we are baptized into the life, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And there's a transformation. There is something that happens to us. We are now no longer this in the life of Adam, but we've been put into, dipped or submerged into this new life with Christ. And now there's a transformation that is beginning. So here we have this guy from 200 BC giving us this idea on how to make pickles, but it helps us to understand what God is going to give us this morning in our new life with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this illustration will be helpful to understand your word this morning, that it's not about this, this physician, philosopher, this poet, but Lord, that we would see your word and understand what our new life in Christ looks like. Help us as we study, we read, 
and we proclaim your truth. May it change and help us to follow you, to be transformed into right thinking, to have a right heart that longs for you, that helps us to understand how to live this new life, even in the midst of our culture and our world. We pray for your people, not just the believers, but those that are in Israel that are um, being uh, the things that are going on because we live in a sinful world. But Lord, we know that you have promised to protect your people, your nation. And so Lord, we, we thank, we're so grateful in that understanding, that confidence of what we know to be true. So Lord, open our eyes to this truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into the Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we, if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. As we look at this, we see this again, these two aspects of a life that we have under Adam, a life that's in sin. And now we see this new life that is in, in the glory of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And, and this whole concept of chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Roman teaches us many theological aspects, like Christ can never sin. Christ can never change. Why? Because he is this representative that's fully perfect, fully God, right? He didn't come out of Adam. He was never under this representative Adam in the flesh. He was always in God, even in the flesh, he was still fully God. That was what made him unique. He couldn't be just flesh of Adam because then he would have to, he wouldn't be a perfect representative in, in, for us, perfect representative. <laughs> but here's the thing we see something here. Could we still? continue in sin, or should we? He, Paul asked this rhetorical question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he's referring back to chapter 5 and verse 20 and following, and the fact that where sin is, grace is more or abounds more. So because grace continues to abound more and it glorifies God to extend his grace, should it, we just continue to sin that God would get more glory as he pours out his grace? 
That, we're like, wait a minute. Logically, that kind of makes sense. But there's a logical implication to reject here. This rhetorical question, and he answers that. He says, by no means. And by the way, that's the, in the Greek, that's the strongest objection that the Greek language has. He's like, no way. It's like a shout from the Greek. Should we continue to sin? Here's the thing. We were died, buried, and rose again. We were taken out of, you know, we were the cucumber. And then we were put into this new place, into the life of Christ, right? And as we're put into this new life of Christ, we are surrounded by his grace that is transforming and changing us from our sinful state into his glorious state. So better than a cucumber, or better than a pickle, right? The only thing better than a cucumber is a pickle. But the only thing better than a pickle is our transformed life in Christ. So here's the thing. When you submerge that cucumber, right? There's still the effect of the cucumber, right? Inside, it's still kind of a cucumber. But the longer it's in the solution, it's surrounded, it's enveloped, it's completely around it, the longer it's in the solution, it, it permeates until it fully becomes a pickle. Here's the thing. is this, The idea is, is that there, as grace abounds more, sin should slowly be transformed and gone. It should not continue. Paul goes on to say, should, are we to continue? That means, should we remain with, abide with, continue with sin? No, we're in it. We're represented. We have a new representation. We are in Christ thoroughly. The second thing that we see is I, I'm, I'm at loss. I don't have the... <laughs> so the first thing is, is, can we remain in sin? The God's grace is never to be a motive to continue to sin. That was never the point. The point was, was that we are surrounded by God's grace to change us. The second point is this. In Christ, we died to sin, so no, we can no longer remain living in sin. We are no longer surrounded, or we are in a new representation. We have a new representation that is translating our life by his life. What does it mean to have died to sin? The word died, by the way, means to be away from, to be alienated from, to be free from, to be removed from connection from. When we think of death, we think of being removed from life. And Paul's idea is we're no longer living in sin, but we've been died, we've died, and we've been raised in this new life. 
So we can no longer remain living in sin. Death to sin is separation from sin's power. We're no longer under this life of Adam. We are now dead. We died. And we arose in this new life. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, also you be holy in all your conduct. God's holiness and who he is surrounds you. That is who you are under now. So live in that. Don't keep looking back in ignorance to your former life. Death to sin is this. In what he's talking about being abundant, or is should we continue to sin that grace may abound even more? Here's the idea of what the text is telling us. Abundant sin is the occasion for abundant grace. So we were abundantly in sin. Our flesh was sinful. But the occasion was is that when he transformed us into this new life in Christ, his grace abounds overflowing surrounding us. It's more than our flesh of sin. But abundant grace is for the destruction of the abundant sin. It's absurd, by the way, to suppose that medicine, think about it, that medicine that takes care of a disease should aggravate the disease, right? We see that happening, by the way, sometimes when they're the trial and error medicine. But when you have a, the idea behind medicine is, is that it should cure the disease, not aggravate the disease, Right? The disease of our sin was cured through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to conquer sin. Not so that way you can sin more. That's what Paul is trying to say here. When he says, are we to continue to remain in fellowship with sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still continue or remain in it. It's impossible because now we're in Christ. That's the idea here. By the way, what's the question is, as we look at this text, what died? Sin or us? This is an important question because it helps us to understand the point here, what Paul is making. Does it make a difference who died? Yes, it does. It is us who died, not sin. We are dead to sin, but sin is not dead in us. We still have that sin remaining in us. That's why the longer we are in Christ, the more the transformation or the imitation of Christ happens. This makes a difference because as an operative principle, the temptation to sin will always be with us, yet its power over us has been severed because we are now in Christ. Let me say it this way. If we view sin as a sphere or a realm 
which I'm talking about the sphere or realm of being in Adam, in sin, having this sinfulness that we're all sinners. And then we have this realm of Christ who has perfectly saved us in his life, burial, and resurrection and conquering death because he is a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's took on the wrath of God in our place. If we use sin as a realm or sphere, then, then the believer no longer lives in this realm or sphere. The believer died. We died. Right? Died from over here. We died to sin once, and he has been translated into another sphere or realm in his life, in Christ. That's the idea here. That brings us to point three, and that is this, that we see in the text. Be intimate with your new union with Christ. We need to be intimate with this new realm that God has put us in, this union with Christ. Verse 2, he ends, and in verse 3, he goes, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Lord Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Do you not know? There's this idea, do not know literally means, do, are, are you still ignorant? That's what it literally means. Are you still ignorant? Are you still living a faulty life because of lack of insight of your baptism with Christ? I chose the word intimate because there's this idea that God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants to be intimately knowing and involved in what we have in Christ. Remember two or three weeks ago, we talked about how we become disciples of Christ, how we deal with the problems of life is simply going back to our relationship with Christ. It's all about Christ. We have to be intimate, not just a familiar. God is not talking about, do you not know? Are you familiar with Christ? God is saying, do you not have an intimate, do you, you're still ignorant about this intimate relationship that you have with Christ? By the way, it's in the present tense when he says, do you not know? He speaks of a continual ignorance. This is a strong statement. Are you continually ignorant of Christ? Do you continually fail to recognize what you have? It's interesting because Paul gives us a glimpse into this in 1 Timothy 1.13 when Paul was talking to and discipling Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. He says in verse 13, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I act ignorantly in unbelief. He said I was continually being ignorant and unbelief about who God is and who Christ is in my life. And yet, so God gave more mercy when he saved me. Have you ever heard the statement that knowledge is power, right? While ignorant results in defeat, 
And while knowing the scripture, the scriptural truth per se won't guarantee victory, not knowing what God says about our relationship with Christ will ultimately cause struggles and defeat in your everyday life. A firm knowledge of your truth about Christ is foundational to the outworking of your new life in Christ. Knowing what you have in Christ is foundational in your outworking and using this new life of Christ. He says, we, don't you know that we've been baptized into Christ, into his death? Verse 4 says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in this newness of life. There was a reason in a picture of baptism being submerged into Christ. What does this picture of baptism represent? The main thought is that we have this new identification, this new immersion of our, in our, of our life. The word shouldn't be confused with, remember, being dipped? Right? Sometimes we think, oh yeah, I know what Christ did for me, and I have this knowledge, this vague knowledge, and I, and I just want to be good, and we dip ourselves into the truth of God's word, and we just, and, but we're not submerged, we're not baptized into Christ. This brings up some confusion in some people thinking that this is talking about water baptism. But what this is talking about is when, we, when we're saved by God, we have what we call this spirit baptism. Or we're taken from this life under Adam and we're translated into this and baptized into Christ at our salvation. Immersion, this immersion here in Romans 6, pictures a spiritual reality. A reality. When we believed in Christ, when we have faith in Christ, when Christ, when God saved us, we become fully identified with him in his death and his burial, and we are united with him in this resurrection, which we call spirit baptism. At the point of our salvation, we are translated into this new life, this new union. We need to understand, not be ignorant of that union. It's a very amazing and special union that begins to give us and translate us into a new life. As we use baptism as an illustration to help us understand our union with Christ. It does. When we, we talk about baptism, it, it's like a naming ceremony that I am proclaiming to everybody that I am no longer living as a person of this world, but I now am living as a one who's been adopted into Christ. And so I'm buried and I'm I, I, I am, this is who I am, but now I'm buried. I'm under the water just as Christ went into the earth. And then I'm raised in this new life, proclaiming that I am no longer 
living for this world, but living in Christ. It's a great illustration. It's what Christ did on our behalf. It was applied to us instantly when God saved us, when we had faith in Christ. But we express it symbolically in baptism. The resurrection proves God has set us free from sin. It's, it, sin is no longer our slave master, but now we have a new master. We have Christ. That should be dramatic, that union, what we have. We're no longer mastered. This is no longer sin. is no longer this master and controlling factor of our life, but we have a new master. We should know that union, that master, who brought us out of that life. A great pastor and theologian, Adrian Rogers, said this, the lost man leaps into sin and loves it. The saved man leaps into sin and loathes it. Because we have a new union. We have a new life that God has given us. A life that's supposed to be driven by his holiness. That union with his holiness that is slowly transforming us into a new creation in Christ brings us to point four, and that is this. Our union with Christ provokes and prompts us to a continual life of righteousness. This union provokes and prompts us. It provokes a change. It says, this is not right. This life of sin that was once permeating my life, it needs to come out. And that righteousness and that life of grace that surrounds our life, it it, that abundance grace, it prompts this new change to transpire, to transform, to ignite us, and it prompts us to this new life of righteousness. You see the difference here? It's not by works. God has continued our sanctification it prompts us, it pushes, it fuels us. We have a new battery in our life. It's God's grace that surrounds us. I don't know if you, I don't like this battery over here. This sinful battery that propels us into perpetual falling and hurting and emotions and driven by all sorts of whims that causes pain and agony. But now we have this new life that's surrounded by God's grace. This new battery that slowly begins to remove that sinful life. That prompts us, that pushes us, that fuels us to righteousness. This is a spiritual act or fact to believe and act upon. Since we are united with Christ in his glorious resurrection, we should walk in that newness of life. By the way, the word new means a new condition, a new state. 
First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five says we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Have you ever tried to take a pickle and make it a cucumber? It's impossible. You destroy the pickle. Here's the point of this passage. We are a new creation in Christ. Stop trying to be like the old creation. Remain in the new creation of Christ. That union. Not only is Christ's resurrection that we're baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, but not only is his resurrection proof that our sins and the effect, the effects of our sins are not the effects, but the, the mastery of our sin is gone. It's also proof that we'll be resurrected to share in God's glory. Look at what he says here. We have been buried in verse 4 in order that Christ was raised from the dead. How? Most of the time it says by the powerful working of God. But what does it say? By the glory of the Father so that we might walk in this new life. Don't skip over the glory of the Father. Glory is this. It's a grand and expansive word. It's a great word. Because it includes the display of all of God the Father's attributes in raising Christ from the dead. You know that abundance grace that we're in? It's filled with all of God's glory. That's God's holiness, God's glory. It was God's glory, it was all of his attributes, it was all of who God is that raised Christ from the dead, that brought us into this new life. But it wasn't just all of his glory, it was all of the glory of the Father. That's different than God, the grand, great God of all of creation. That's our, that's a father. The word father implies his great love, not only for his son, but his great love for you. God has declared us right or righteous and so identified us with Christ Jesus, that all of our sin is gone. We are free from the slavery of sin, and the, this reality should provoke us and prompt us to a new life in Christ. What this tells us, I keep looking for the click, what this tells us is that there are no hybrid Christians. You know that hybrid concept that's out there? Right? We have gas engines, and we have battery engines, and we have, yeah, this, you know, you too can have the best of both worlds. Well, I'm here to tell you, none of the worlds are best, <laughs> right? One day, all of this oil is going to be gone. It's going to be burned up. We're going to be in heaven, right? It doesn't matter. And, you know, batteries, they just, you run out of battery, and they sometimes blow up and die or burn, <laughs> right? And, and the hybrid, yeah, it kind of is the best of both worlds. It lasts a little bit longer. But here's the reality. There are no hybrid Christians. You are either in Adam or you're either in Christ. 
there was a there's this concept that oh yeah you know you I'm I'm saved but I'm just living like I'm Adam. I'm living like a sinner. It's okay because God's going to save me. The reality is, is there are no hybrid Christians. You've been translated into this new life in Christ. And this is, what, what do we take from these, this text? And I want to give you some things to think about as we close. And that's this conclusion. Do not presume on God's grace as a permission to sin. That's not, what, that's not what God's grace is about. It's meant to draw out our sin and to remove it. Change us into the image of God. Don't presume upon it. That's not what God's grace is about. It's not so that you can sin all you want and you'll be okay. That means that you're not living in united with Christ. That probably means you're not united with Christ. If you say, well, I'm just going to live a sinful life. Most of the people that have told me that in my years as a pastor are no longer even fellowshipping with any Christians, not going to church. They would say they don't even believe, most of them would say they don't even believe in God anymore. That's how far they just went away. Don't presume upon God's grace as a permission to sin. The other thing is, is make a distinct break from your past life and declare it publicly in baptism. This is, this is what baptism is about, is declare that my old life is gone and my new life, I am united with Christ. You haven't been baptized, this is the importance of it. It's a public declaration, so everybody knows it and holds you accountable to this new life. That's what, make a distinct break from your past life. Don't follow after your old life. Follow after your new life in Christ. Enjoy. Do you not know what you have in Christ? Your union is what he's saying. And we're going to look at all of that. The next one is this, is, is that meditate often on your union with Christ and what it means. That what God is doing, this transformation, that you are dead to your sin because Christ died for our sin. You're not, this is no longer, when it means that you're, you've died, you're, you're saying when you've died to sin, that this is no longer your master. Sin is still alive. It's going to always tempt you, but it doesn't, it's not controlling you. You have a new look to that new life in Christ. That's why God said he will always give you a way out from your temptation because you no longer have that master. You have a new master. Live in that. The next one here is ask yourself, are, you ste are your steps more and more godly or less and less and less and less like the old sinful person and the world around you? Are you living in that union? Is that union with Christ empowering your life? It should cause the sin to come up. Don't be shocked when sin surfaces because that's what God's grace is doing. And he does that to remove it. 
Don't be ashamed as since live in your union with Christ. Don't get so fixated on trying to hide that sin. Let it come out and escape. It's no longer your master. You have a new master. That's what grace is doing in your life. It's giving you what you don't deserve. It's changing you. It's giving you this, it's putting you into right perspective with God so you can enjoy the fullness of a relationship with God. So are you step by step going in that direction? The other one here. The gospel of grace produces holiness better than the law does. What our text tells us here, the inference, the implication, is is that it's God's grace, it's the gospel of grace, it's dealing with our sin and translating us. We can't, when we think about living a holy life or living a right life with God, it's not by works, lest any man should boast, it's by uniting ourselves with Christ. By the way, I say, man, that we, we talk about our senior saints that look godly. We're like, that is the perf- man, that's a picture perfect person of godliness. They, they could have acted this way, but instead they acted this way. I would have never acted this way, right? Man, I tell you what, I get emotional and it just, right? But they don't. And you're like, wow, they're just, they're godly. They didn't get that way by doing a bunch of, you know, following a bunch of rules and things. They did that because of what God's grace produced in their life. It it always reveals the truth. God's grace always reveals the truth and transforms us into his image. The last one here is this. A lack of growth and holiness is due to a failure of understanding and applying the gospel. We don't leave the gospel behind when we know that God has saved us and and we're like, yep, I've responded to the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for my sins. He was a perfect payment for my sin. And now I'm just sitting here, bump on a log, waiting for his return. No, he's got work to do. Paul said... The one thing I do, Philippians 3, I agonize to know Christ, to know that union that I have with Christ. He strived as a runner, strives to reach across the finish line. He's not sitting there at the start of the race saying, okay, I'm waiting, uh, you know, waiting for the finish line to come to him He's running and striving to know this union that he has in Christ. So then that way, when Christ comes back, he will be transformed into perfection that God has for him. To be saved and holy and living the rest of eternity in right relationship with God. The lack of growth in our life of holiness is due to a failure of understanding and applying that gospel. Have you left the gospel behind in your life? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By the way, in the solution over here in our union with Christ, there's very little sin. It doesn't grow. 
But God's holiness removes that sin over time. Over here, in our, with our representative Adam in our life in, in sin, sin abounds. It continues to grow. And it pushes out holiness. But we are dead. We died. And now are living in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. We are surrounded by him. He empowers us. If you are just sitting there, just following a bunch of rules, you're missing the whole point. You've, you've, you may know the gospel, but you haven't continued in the gospel. Don't leave the gospel behind. Bring it with you. Paul is saying, don't you know, we've been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father who into this new walk of life, this new direction, where new battery to push us in the right direction. That's why we didn't, we've, we're not afraid of sin because God has conquered our sin. Has God conquered the sin of your life, the sin of your heart? Do you realize what God is doing? I trust that you see what you should be focusing on in your life. Unite, focus on Christ. I can't stress that enough. Every time you wake up, think about your union with Christ. Be intimate with your union with Christ. Find joy from your union with Christ. Even when you're sad because of the circumstance in your life, meditate on your union with Christ. Because he should be permeating all of your life. He did that through his glory. All of his attributes to, to save us from our sin. Lord, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for this new life that we have in Christ. Thank you that you did what we could never do. That it says, do you not know that we've been baptized? Lord, you, you were telling us that, that we were, that it was something that was out of our hands. It was something that you did for us when you saved us. Because we were dead. Lord, I pray that we would see this and realize why we struggle so much sometimes with sin. Because we are not focusing on our union with Christ, but we're focusing on what we can do. When we focus on what we can do, we are being driven by the emotions of the time, of the circumstance, of the, the byproduct of the life around us. We're not being driven by the life that we are in, that you gave us through Christ. May we draw from that life that we've been put in. We've been adopted into a new family. Lord, I pray that as we see that sin, that we wouldn't focus on that sin and say, oh, well, God will save me or God has saved me. But Lord, we would look to you and let your grace transform us and conform us into your image rather than the image of this world. 
May we not look at this world and say, well, I'm okay, I'm better than them. And realize that it's not the world that we're supposed to be looking at, but it's Christ. Help us as we move forward, as we grow in our relationship with you, that we might mature as a church, continue to grow, and look more and more like you. Thank you that it's a work that you've promised to do, that he who began a good work in us will continue to do it until the day of Christ return. Lord, may that be our goal, is to become more and more like you as you do that work, and may we let you do that in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.